This episode is brought to you by the members of the Best of the Left podcast. The show is delivered twice a week instead of just once, thanks to their kind donations. Now, welcome to the Best of the Left podcast, with clips today from Rachel Maddow, On the Media, The Young Turks, Slate Magazine, The Colbert Report, NPR, and Countdown. gets crazy when political debate discards the facts in favor of the freaky and the far-fetched and the fearful those of us who make a living talking about the news sometimes have a little bit of a dilemma in order to represent truthfully the character of a political debate you have to point it out if someone in that debate is making stuff up or if they don't appear to understand what they're saying in order to give an accurate portrayal of what's going on it's important to point out when people are lying The dilemma is that even negative attention is still attention. The time it takes on a TV show like this one to point out that someone is a liar is national media attention being devoted to a liar. A liar who probably is loving the attention and therefore is being rewarded for their lying. It's a dilemma. But it is a dilemma that can be solved. Did you see Betsy McCoy on The Daily Show last night? As we have reported at some length on this show, Betsy McCoy is responsible for the whole conspiracy theory that the government encouraging people to make living wills, which the government has done for 20 years, is somehow, now that it's included in the House Health Reform Bill, somehow now it's a secret plot to kill old people. Betsy McCoy started this conspiracy theory. She is the typhoid Mary of the deather scourge. She is the angel of deathers. And last night, Jon Stewart on The Daily Show braved the risk of giving Betsy McCoy a bigger platform than she's ever had before. Bigger than Fred Thompson's talk radio show. Bigger than the op-ed page of Rupert Murdoch's New York Post. Bigger even than The New Republic, in which she published a famously error-ridden hit piece on Bill Clinton's health reform proposal back in the 90s that the magazine had to apologize for after the fact. Jon Stewart braved giving the angel of deathers a big stage on which to propound her nonsense views that scare old people. He braved it so he could totally, utterly, thoroughly discredit her over two entire segments of his 30-minute show and for another 10 minutes online. It was a public service, really. It seems like this bill is allowing people more control over their lives and that your reading of it is hyperbolic and and in some cases dangerous. This provision is so dangerous. This provision is so dangerous that Mm -hmm. the Senate Finance Committee has already ripped it out of its draft. It's not because it's so dangerous, it's because people so lost their about it. No. The the misinformation that was put out there. Look, we, we we can argue about whether or not it's a slippery slope to certain things, but there is absolutely nothing in that reading that says this is a mandatory consultation. Well, you're wrong. You know, John, you're great, but you're wrong. All right, then show me where it says it. I I told you it's on page 432. Well, get it. Somebody took page 432 and looked I, I at the you, I almost feel like we got to play yakety sax. No, it's right here. Let me just read it very quickly. In general, for purposes of reporting data on quality measures for covered professional services, uh, the Secretary shall include quality measures on end-of-life care and advanced care planning that have been adopted or endorsed by a consensus-based organization, if appropriate. Such measures shall measure both their creation of and adherence to orders for life-sustaining treatment. That's right. And what's wrong about this, it's one thing to pay doctors to spend time with their patients discussing this issue. I am not against this. But putting pressure on doctors to require patients to go through a consultation that's prescribed by the government and okay, then two, penalize two, two, two them. Wait a second. Wait a second. Just, right. just, and then to penalize them if the patient or their family changes their mind about their living will two, two, in a moment of crisis, that, that's, that's really wrong. It, it would be really wrong if that was in any way what this said. It, <laughs> but that is not in any way what this says. 
Okay, you know what? Let me you know let what? me let me take you this out because me, you clearly don't need. You can it. make Look, me. The, 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 such can make measures, me such measures shall measure both the creation of an right. adherence to orders for right. life-sustaining treatment. But, but life no, no, no. sustaining. A $500 billion cut from Medicare is going to mean that seniors won't be able to get knee replacements and hip replacements when they're crippled by arthritis. But that's they're not, not going to be able to get bypass surgery when they're breathless from clogged arteries. Over the last 40 years, Medicare but let me, has let me, transformed the experience of aging for the elderly. And this is a cruel thing to take the money out of Medicare. It is a cruel thing if what they were saying is we're going to say money by making sure old people can't get hip replacements. I understand that. But that is not in any way what they are proposing. Medicine is a science-based uh, uh, thing. They're trying to compile empirical data about treatments that work best and those types of things. Nobody is suggesting that old people will not be able to get new hips and hearts. Oh, yes, they are. That's exactly what these cuts That's, are going to mean. Let me, let me ask you something. what it's going to mean. You have no evidence of this. Of course I do. Because Where? Because... So after that happened on The Daily Show last night, a medical supply company of which Betsy McCoy was a paid director, Cantel Medical, announced that she would no longer be with the company. I wonder if there's maybe a job for her at Freedom Works. For historical precedent on health care reform, what first springs to mind, of course, is the Clinton administration fiasco in 1993 and 94. But using the Clinton's experience as an object lesson doesn't really tell the whole story. Attempts at a national health care program are almost a century old, says Princeton professor Paul Starr, author of the book The Social Transformation of American Medicine. And for as long as the idea has been popular among incoming administrations, it has been vilified and successfully derailed by critics. Starr knows this firsthand because in addition to being an author and a professor of sociology and public affairs at Princeton, he was drafted by the Clinton White House to help avoid the mistakes of the past. He joins us now. Paul, welcome back to the show. Glad to be with you, Bob. I want to start with where Brooks Jackson left off, and that is the Truman administration and a, a very successful effort by the American Medical Association to demonize any federal involvement as, as socialism. Can you take us back? The issue of health insurance had first been raised before the First World War and was then defeated, partly because it was actually associated at that point with Germany. And when war broke out with Germany, it helped to sink that proposal. Then in the late 40s, which is, of course, when the Cold War was beginning, the opponents associated national health insurance, as it had come to be called, with Soviet-style socialism. What exactly did the AMA and its uh, PR people do to create the notion that a national health care plan was somehow Bolshevism? They suggested that Lenin had supposedly said that health care was the first step toward instituting communism. There was a mythical quote that no one has been ever able to discover to that effect. And they argued that it was, you know, like a gateway drug in the beginning of a slippery slope toward government control of everything. In that period, given the Cold War, that argument was a powerful one. 
Maybe the Lenin quote is somewhere in the House bill next to the death panels provision. Page 764. (laughs) Now, before Truman, there was Roosevelt, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who himself had battles with the AMA. What was the nature of those? Roosevelt never took on the AMA directly. The Committee for Economic Security, which recommended the old age insurance system that we know of as Social Security, they also recommended health insurance. But when Roosevelt had to decide what was he going to submit to Congress in 1935, he held back the health insurance provisions. He was afraid of the AMA's opposition and so decided to leave it to a later day. But during the Great Depression, Franklin Roosevelt and the American people had a lot of other things to worry about. And so he never got back to health insurance. And it was only Harry Truman who then was the first president to make national health insurance a cause. It would have fit very snugly within the New Deal, but you're suggesting that FDR simply knew that he would not have the AMA on board and he needed them for other initiatives. Well, he needed to pass Social Security, which was not an easy thing to do in 1935. And by the way, the opponents of Social Security also said it was socialism. So if we can assume for just a moment that the president is right and uh, the Clintons were right and Harry Truman was right and Teddy Roosevelt was right, that the government should be intervening in the health care system to keep down costs and uh, create something close to universal coverage... What is it that the AMA in the 40s and 50s and the health insurance lobby in the 90s and the current ideological opponents in 2009 have been able to consistently do to obliterate the common sense of health care reform? They've been able to raise fears among the haves that they will lose from reform. And America has a system that does provide protection to a lot of people. And yet we all know that healthcare costs are rising. They're staggeringly high. And I think as a result, even the haves are nervous about losing what they've got. And so consequently, I think they can be mobilized against reform. The single biggest surprise this year is that the major healthcare interest groups have not been a factor in the mobilization against reform. It wasn't the AMA. It hasn't been the pharmaceutical industry. It hasn't been the hospitals. By and large, they've negotiated in many cases a pretty good deal for themselves. So it is an ideological and political opposition this time, almost purely. And here I think history is really exercising a very powerful effect because the last time we fought this out, back in 1993-94, Republicans won. And so I think they are trying to reenact history. They are trying to do to Obama what they did to Clinton, not just to defeat health care reform, but to neutralize his entire agenda. them because the kid with the cerebral palsy would be helped by Obama's health care plan. Kenneth Gladney, who fell down or was pushed down, however you want to look at that video, at one of these events has no health care insurance. Obama's plan would cover it. Joe the Plumber, back in the day, would have received and eventually probably did receive a tax cut under Obama's tax plan. But he was vociferously arguing against it because he wanted to make sure people making over $250,000 
didn't get any tax increases. These people are not helping themselves. They don't know what the hell is going on. And the healthcare industry looks at this, and they've set up a couple of conservative groups. One of them is run by Dick Army, whose uh, lobbyist arm has gotten over $6 million from the healthcare industry. That's called Freedom Works. Another one of these groups is run by a guy who has for-profit clinics all throughout the country. Okay, And you think that they got paid for all those buses and paid for the flyers and paid for all this stuff out of the goodness of their heart? No, they want to continue making money off of your back. And the guys that they're hurting the most, they've convinced that they're going to get hurt by Obama's plan instead of covered by Obama's plan, the exact opposite of the truth. And they go out there and yell and scream on behalf of people who make so much money and are using them as convenient tools. I'm saying tools, but you look at it and you think they're obviously also partly fools. But I really feel bad in saying that because their anger is misdirected, it is manipulated, and, it, and they charge them in the wrong direction, and they're just hurting themselves. It's, I, they, uh, just, after a while, it looks pathetic. So, but how do you reach them? You know, and, and I, I, you know what? I'm going to put a little bit of this on Obama because he's got to do a better job of reaching them. Now, you can say, hey, wait a minute, that's not fair. These are the guys who are so anti-Obama, he couldn't possibly reach them. Maybe not, maybe not, but it's worth trying. Listen, Obama has to explain to these people, it's not black versus white, it's not you know Republican versus Democrat, it's not liberal versus conservative, it's the powerful versus the powerless. The powerful have all the money in the world and they want to keep making that money through that system. And it doesn't mean that all people with money are bad, come on, don't be ridiculous, right? But it does mean that this industry, which makes a ton of money through this, is trying to manipulate, manipulate you in a certain direction. Now look at the plan for what it really is. Look, the Rush Limbaugh's and the Glenn Becks of the world get paid by these guys. The Freedom Works that sent you the flyer gets paid by these guys. Americans for Prosperity that got you, put you on the bus, pays for these guys. And then you're getting screwed. He's got to reach out to them and let them know the real people who are getting played is you. You're going to get help by this program. I, I don't know if they'll listen. I don't, I, you know, and JR's shaking his head, and I hear you, JR, and they probably won't. But he's got to frame the argument that way because that's the reality of it. But in order to do that, though, he's got to get some credibility. You can't say about how the powerful are screwing you and then give billions upon billions of dollars to the bankers and not hold them accountable. Look, you've got you to gotta actually walk the walk. And you can't do this and then cut a big deal with the big pharmaceutical companies. You know, and I, I talked about that deal before, and that deal has its ups and its downs, but it's certainly not the powerless taking it to the powerful. It's a compromise. It's negotiation. It's conciliation. And it's conciliatory. Uh, and I think that there's a way to reach those people. It's not going to happen overnight. But I think we have to try, man. I think we got to tell those people, listen, you're, we're on your side. You're getting hosed by the, uh, the other guys. And your anger, it, they're taking advantage of you. That's the bottom line. They're taking advantage of you to lead you astray. Don't let them do it. And all the things that I wish I had not said I played in lips till it's madness in my head Is it too late to remind you how we were? And not our last days of silence, screaming blur Most of what I remember I should have stopped you from walking out the door You could be happy, I hope you are Today's story is called The Republican Death Machine Who's Really Pulling the Plug on Grandma? And it's written by Jacob Weisberg 
Republicans charged that Democratic health care reform would, in Senator Charles Grassley's words, pull the plug on grandma. According to Senator John Kyle, the bills before Congress would ration medical treatment by age. Representative John Boehner says they promote euthanasia. Alaskan abdicate Sarah Palin has raised the specter of death panels. Such fears are understandable. It's not preposterous to imagine laws that would try to save money by encouraging the inconvenient elderly to make a timely exit. After all, that's been Republican policy for years. It was Senator Grassley himself who rammed the GOP's most astonishing pro-death policy through the Senate in 2001. The estate tax revision he championed reduces the estate tax to zero next year, but when the law expires at year's end, the tax will jump back up to its previous level of 55%. Grassley's exploding offer has an entirely foreseen, if unintended, consequence. It's going to encourage those whose parents and grandparents are worth anything more than a million bucks to get them dead by midnight on December 31, 2010. This would be a great plot for a P.D. James novel if it weren't an actual piece of legislation. As economists will tell you, when you tax something less, you get more of it. Various studies have shown that this logic applies to life and death, as well as to more modest behavioral choices. In a 2001 paper titled Dying to Save Taxes, Wojciech Kopchuk and Joel Slimrod examined 13 tax changes since 1917 and concluded that for individuals dying within two weeks of a tax reform, a $10,000 potential tax savings increases the probability of dying in the lower tax regime by 1.6%. A 2006 study done in Australia, which abolished its inheritance tax in 1979, reached the same conclusion. A statistically significant effect of the abolition of inheritance taxes on the number of deaths. More than half the people who, according to statistics, ordinarily would have paid the Aussie inheritance tax in its final week, managed to evade it by living a bit longer. Here, Congress has created an incentive for Grandma to stick around through January 1, 2010, and snuff it before the end of next year. Other GOP policies promote death for senior citizens with more modest incomes. Take the conservative push to privatize Social Security, which George W. Bush proposed and failed to get Congress to pass in 2005. Social Security has driven life expectancy up and death rates down since it was instituted. It has an especially pronounced impact on suicide rates for the elderly, which have declined 56% since 1930. Had Bush prevailed, we would now be undoing income security for the elderly. Those who gambled on the stock market and lost would be less able to afford medicine, food, and heating for their homes. In aggregate, they'd presumably die younger and commit suicide more often. Republicans continue working to shorten and sadden the lives of the elderly in more oblique ways, too. One of President Obama's first official acts was to reverse Bush's executive order limiting government funding for stem cell research, which remains the most promising avenue for new treatments of diseases that afflict the aged, including Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. Clean air legislation, which the Republicans defeated in 2002, has the potential to save 23,000 lives per year, according to the Environmental Protection Agency. Many of those victims are elderly people who suffered disproportionately from cardiovascular and respiratory illnesses exacerbated by air pollution. Because emissions of carbon monoxide and such are merely a contributing factor, you can't name the individuals who have died because of this policy choice. But there are tens of thousands of people who would still be elderly today if Republicans didn't value the rights and campaign contributions of polluters more highly than their lives. Why are Republicans trying to kill America's old people? After all, senior citizens are more likely to vote for the GOP than for Democrats. They were the only substantial demographic segment John McCain won in 2008. You'd think Republicans would want them to hang on as long as possible. The problem is that because of the Democratic programs Social Security and Medicare, the aged are expensive for government to keep around. Some years ago, my former colleague Jody T. Allen suggested a reason for what she called the GOP's pro-death policies. Faced with an unpalatable choice between cutting benefits and raising taxes to pay for the growing costs of entitlement programs, Republicans gravitated toward a third alternative, 
restraining growth in life expectancy. If you want lower taxes and aren't willing to risk cutting spending, you need fewer beneficiaries. I do not wish to alarm older, wealthier readers, but you may find family gatherings becoming increasingly tense over the next year. Do not be surprised if your heirs and assigns try to sit you down for a conversation. You may want to have a witness or security guard present. And do not be surprised if you experience something like the following nightmare. You're in a hospital bed, hovering in a state of partial consciousness. Beneath the mask, that surgeon fiddling with the IV line has a familiar face. Wait, isn't that Dr. Grassley? And coming at you with a hypodermic syringe, Nurse Palin? At which point, if you're lucky, you'll wake up in a cold sweat. of America's healthcare crisis. Has he seen cable news? I'm pretty sure every story has been told. Please welcome Jonathan Cohn. Hey, Mr. Cohn, thank you so much for coming on. All right, sir. Your book is called Sick, all right? It's about health care, health care reform, the supposed crisis we have in America. You and I are pretty healthy. We are What's the problem? What's the problem? Well, there's two problems. We have millions of Americans who don't have health insurance. They should get some. Well, they should, right? They absolutely should. Yeah, I got some. I didn't even work very hard for it. Well, I know you didn't. But here's the problem. There are millions of Americans who can't get it. They mm -hmm. can't get it because they don't have the money, mm -hmm. or they, ha they can't get it because they have some pre-existing medical condition. Mm -hmm. They were born with it, or maybe they, you know, had an accident. They have a lingering injury, and because mm -hmm. of that... Say they were hit, uh, they were like, uh, they were on their bike, and they were hit by someone who was texting. Quite possibly. Mm -hmm. I saw that, and that's absolutely. And, you know, you're in rehabilitation for months, and, you know, either you'll find out when you're sick if you have health insurance. Mm -hmm. Why is that my problem? Well, it's everybody's problem. It could happen to anybody. Not me. Well, it could happen to you. No, no, I'm on TV. Well, I know you're... <laughs> mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Bad things don't happen to me. Go ahead. Well, actually, the shows get canceled. No, not this one. Mm -hmm. Go on. All right. I hope you're right. I like this show, but the truth is shows get canceled. People lose their jobs. They lose their insurance. And even if they are insured, and this is, I think, when we talk about the untold story, people who have insurance, they think they're secure, they think you know, they're middle class, they have a good job, they get sick, and then all of a sudden they discover, oh, the insurance policy doesn't cover what they need. And, or it does cover it, but it leaves them with thousands of dollars in deductibles. Or there's a lifetime cap. And the next thing you know, you have this middle class person going through their life, playing by the rules, doing all the right things. They get sick, and the next thing you know, they have to make the same choices as someone who has no insurance. Either they can pay for their medical care or they can go bankrupt. So are you, is the whole point of this that you think we need this health care reform boondoggle that's coming down the pipe? You well, think we need that? You're in favor of this? I'm absolutely in favor of health Why reform. Why do you want to kill grandmas? <laughs> Why do, what did grandmothers ever do to you? Do they forget your birthday or something like that? Because that's what's going to happen. They're death panels. Yeah. There are death panels. Okay, my question for you is, how do I get on one of those death panels? Because I would be merciless. You know, I'd say, this actually upsets me. I love my grandmother. You do? I have a 95-year-old sweet old grandmother funny in Miami. way of showing it, baby. No, no, no. The truth is, and I would really like to know where somebody in bed. There is nothing like this in the health care reform plans. We, uh, it allows for counseling on end-of-life issues. It does. And you yes. want to know something else? What? This is the insurance policy for the Colbert Report. I yeah. had my producer, your producer, give when me a When did copy. we start offering health insurance? 
They must not have told you about it. No, no, they did not. And guess what? What? The coverage end-of-life planning. What? What? Seriously, is that what this is? No, actually, it's something else I marked, but, but it does. I just... <laughs> well, then I think you're lying. I'll put it out for you. It, no, there's it, a really it provides for counseling of end-of-life issues? Absolutely. So I actually, I actually could have my staff put to death? <laughs> I legally, I, I am a one-man death panel? That's Look, what I'm, hear, no, that's what I'm hearing. I don't know what you're like, saying, no, but that's no, no, what I'm I, hearing. I, I know that's what you're hearing. Well, let's talk, you know, I just want to say for a second, there are no death panels. All this is is letting people, giving people, if they want to have a living will, you know, uh -huh. so you know, here, here's here's some counseling on how to do it, so you do it right. But this, I find this really obscene because the truth is, if you want to, who is health reform designed to help the most? It's the disabled, the sick, the people who really struggle right now in our system because the insurance industry doesn't take okay, care of that, them. Okay, but that, but you're you're just playing the 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 disabled and sick card. <laughs> we already have President George W. Bush, famously said. That, 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 that poor do have health options. They can go to the emergency room, okay? So, is that, is he wrong? People can go to the emergency room, right? Uh, you sick, yeah, you go to the emergency room. You know, the emergency room is great if you're bleeding to death. There's law mm -hmm. that says they have to take care of you. The problem right. is, uh, it'd be much better to get you health care before you're bleeding to death. Um, the emergency room is not a place to get ongoing uh, care, preventative care, routine care. And one other thing, if you've been to an emergency room lately, you've probably noticed that you will wait forever because mm -hmm. it's clogged with all these people who can't get health care anywhere else. I am on TV. TV. Right, right. And <laughs> second... Second, and I think very few people understand this, if you go to the emergency room and they take care of you, they will patch you up, they will make you better, and yes. they will bill you. And there are lots of people that go to the emergency room, they get billed, they owe tens of thousands of dollars, their wages are garnished afterwards, and you know they end up in serious financial trouble because of it. This is not a national health care plan. Emergency room is for emergencies. And but if you don't have health insurance, isn't your whole life kind of an emergency? <laughs> Isn't this a crisis? It is a crisis, and it could become an emergency. But you know what? Let's stop it from being an emergency. That's what health reform is designed to do. All right, do you think this is going to pass? I do. Am I going to have to shell, uh, you know, shell out of my pocket for people who didn't have the forethought to well, have cash? No, you know, one of the... <laughs> One of the nice things about health care system, one of the good news, bad news, is we waste a ton of money in our health care system. There's a huge amount of waste. The good news is if you take out just a little bit of that, you don't have to get rid of it all, just a little bit of it, there's more than enough money to take care of people who don't have health insurance. And by the way, if we do this over the long term and we make health care less expensive, that means more money in our paychecks. I like that. See? Well, sir, stay healthy. Thanks the book is sick. My guest is Jonathan Cohn. Matter of fact, he's enjoying turning, trying to and his and the crowd. Pardon me, everyone, and let me just expound for a moment on the virtues and benefits of a Best of the Left membership. First of all, it's the members that are helping to support this show and keeping it going strong twice a week. Without their support, the production schedule would absolutely have to be cut back. So you have those to thank who are willing to pay as little as $5 a month for the sheer volume of content that you're receiving in the podcast. On top of that, members also receive the Best of the Left raw feed. This feed contains all of the clips that end up in the show, as well as some that don't make the final cut, and those clips that originally come from television or some other video source are delivered in their original video format. To become a member, simply go to the website at bestoftheleft.com and click the membership tab. Thanks so much for your support. One last slouching in the corner booth, baby, it's as good as it gets. Oh, such grace. Oh, such beauty. We begin tonight, actually, with news that is both good news and unsettling news from Wall Street. The Dow overall lost about 186 points today. Now, that is not catastrophic or anything, but it's one of those days where the market closing gets described as sharply lower on all of the business pages. Now, despite the market being down, the unsettling good news from Wall Street today comes from the New York Times market spotlight on today's most actively traded stocks. Four of the eight most traded stocks in America today were giants in the health business. Pfizer, Wyeth, Aetna, United Health, and all four had great days today, even as the rest of the market slumped. Why was today such a good day to be a stockholder in, say, United Health? Well, here's a hint.
And I think what's important is choice and competition. And I'm convinced at the end of the day, the plan will have both of those. But that is not the essential element. So the bottom line for this for the president is what we have to have is choice and competition in the insurance market. The public option, whether we have it or we don't have it, is not the entirety of health care reform. This is just one sliver of it, one aspect of it. The, the fact of the matter is there are not the votes in the United States Senate for the public option. There never have been. You know, when you have a weekend like that, it's no real surprise when Monday turns out to be a great day for health insurance stock prices. How did we get here? How did we get to the foretold death of the public option and United Health's awesome Monday on Wall Street? Well, we got here through a collapse of political ambition and the resultant downgrading of expectations for this once-in-a-lifetime, stars-aligned political shot at fixing the system that accounts for a sixth of our economy, a system that is so broken that a majority of personal bankruptcies in this country are caused by medical costs, and a majority of those people who are going bankrupt because of their medical costs actually have health insurance. Trying to meet the health care needs of our nation of 300 million people by just hoping the private sector will provide has been a disaster. Uh, check that, actually. It's been a disaster for the American people and the American economy. It's been great for the insurance companies and for the other big health corporations who've made health care for profit a better modern corporate racket than anything other than being a defense contractor in the Rumsfeld era. However we got to the system we have now, it doesn't have to stay this way. This isn't the way that other countries do it. And there are even long-standing pilot projects that have worked out pretty well, thank you, in this country for basing a healthcare system on the needs of patients rather than on corporations' need for a fat bottom line. The Veterans Administration, for example, offers one big long-standing American pilot project for how to change healthcare. The Veterans Administration is a nationalized healthcare system. It's a totally public system. The government runs the hospitals, the healthcare professionals who work in the system work for the government, it's the same kind of system that the general public uses in England. Well, here in the U.S., a right-wing group opposed to health care reform called Conservatives for Patients' Rights has tried to convince Americans that British people hate their health care system. They've produced ads like this one, purporting to show real British people warning Americans about how bad their British NHS is. Well, the actual British people who ended up in those ads now say they were duped. They say they actually support the NHS, and they're horrified to learn that they are being used to discredit it. Another big long-standing American pilot project for how to change health care is Medicare. Medicare is single-payer health care. In Medicare, the doctors and nurses don't work for the government. The hospitals can still be private, even for-profit, but the government provides the health insurance. They're the single-payer. You essentially take the huge bulk of administrative costs for all the private insurance companies out of the system, and you end up with Medicare. You end up with a system that Americans have a much higher degree of satisfaction with than they do for private insurance. Most industrialized countries have single payer or national health care, and they spend less, and they have better health outcomes than we do with our big experiment in hoping the private sector will provide. Presidents from Truman in 1948 through Kennedy and, and Carter and Clinton have all tried to reshape, to reform the American health care system, all to no avail. And by the closing years of the George W. Bush administration, the number of uninsured Americans was approaching 50 million, and the CEOs of the 10 largest health insurance companies were taking home an average compensation of $11.9 million each every year. In 2008, all change. Not only did the Democrats take the White House, but they did so with a candidate who explicitly campaigned on a health care reform promise. They won a more than 70-seat majority in the House. They won a filibuster-proof 60-seat majority in the Senate. If health care reform is ever going to be possible, it's never going to be more possible than it is this year. But from the very, very beginning, single-payer health care and national health care were completely off the table. As Matt Taibbi writes in his new gut-wrenching article on health care for Rolling Stone, when key Democratic Senator Max Baucus convened the first roundtable discussions on health care reform last May, Senator Baucus invited 41 witnesses to Capitol Hill to share their perspective on what ought to happen with health care reform. 41 witnesses over three days, not a single witness was scheduled to speak in favor of single-payer. 
because single-payer was inexplicably totally beyond the realm of consideration, Democrats ended up instead proposing something called a public option, a Medicare-like plan that at least some Americans could choose to buy into instead of buying private insurance. Now, apparently, even that is off the table, too. We know that the president, both when he was a candidate and well into the current debate as president, said that a public option was a must. That's why any plan I sign must include an insurance exchange, including a public option to increase competition and keep insurance companies honest. And choose what's best for your family. Must, he said. Must. He has changed his mind on that now, apparently. Even Max Baucus, the won't-even-consider-single-payer conservative senator from Montana who leads the committee that is now dropping the public option, even Max Baucus was in favor of the public option as recently as last November when he published his big 100-page health care proposal that called for, quote, a new public option, a new public plan option similar to Medicare. So if Max Baucus was in favor of a public option, and President Obama was in favor of a public option, and a public option survived through three House committees and one Senate committee that passed bills on health care reform so far, why is the public option dying now? It's dying because of a collapse of political ambition. The Democrats are too scared of their own shadow to use the majority the American people elected them to in November to actually pass something they said they favored. Senator Baucus has decided to take decision-making about health care reform out of the full committee on which Democrats have a huge majority, and instead, he wants it to be decided by a mini-committee that he made up that's three senators from each party, as if the American people elected a half-and-half -half Republican and Democratic Senate this year, which we did not. We elected a big Democratic majority, but then Democrats decided to wield that majority by giving the Republicans control over what kind of health care reform we get. So we get no public option. We get no public option, no single payer, no national health plan. Maybe some insurance reform, maybe not. Depends on what else the Republicans want, probably. For nearly 50 years, Senator Edward Kennedy was a champion of liberal causes, civil rights, immigration, and his most enduring fight, universal health care. That fight started with this ad from his first Senate campaign in 1962. Too many of our senior citizens are being forced to choose between neglecting their ailments or being pauperized by them. It was Kennedy's biggest legislative disappointment that he was never able to steer a universal health care bill safely through Congress. Still, as NPR's Julie Rovner reports, he left a lasting mark on the nation's health care system. The list of health care bills written or sponsored or somehow negotiated by Kennedy over his Senate career literally fills books. He expanded children's health insurance coverage. He provided funding to fight HIV and AIDS. He crafted policies to protect the nation from bioterrorism. He was basically a one-man health policy history lesson. Brandeis University professor Stuart Altman has been in and around health policy since 1971. I guess I'm getting up there in terms of years, and uh, there is no one that comes close, not even 10% close to what Senator Kennedy has done and what he stood for. Kennedy started standing for health care when he first ran for the Senate seat, originally left vacant, when older brother John was elected president. A man who cares. Edward M. Kennedy endorsed Democratic candidate for the United States Senate. 
In a three-and-a-half-minute black-and-white television ad, a youthful Ted Kennedy is seen pushing for passage of Medicare. Here, he's shown interviewing Lynn, Massachusetts resident Helen Clancy. Have you noticed that there has been an increase in medical expenses in the past few years? Decidedly, 75 or 85 percent more. Have you had any illness recently in which has eaten up a portion of your income? Well, I had a uh, hospitalization for 10, uh, 10 days, the first of the year, which cost over $400. Kennedy would see Medicare passed after his brother's death. A few years later, he pushed for the expansion of a relatively small program created as part of Lyndon Johnson's War on Poverty. Today, the Community Health Center's program serves some 16 million Americans, by the 1970s, Kennedy had become a force to be reckoned with in health care. David Blumenthal, who now works in the Obama administration, worked for Kennedy in those days. He said Kennedy liked issues that would bring publicity, particularly because he still harbored hopes of running for president. But it, he wasn't just about cameras. He was also about long hearings about biomedical research, long hearings about how to prevent illness, uh, long hearings about technology and its effect on health care and how to measure it and evaluate it. And despite his reputation as a far-left liberal, Kennedy, the legislator, was always ready to look for a compromise. In the early 1970s, Stuart Altman worked for President Nixon, trying to draft a national health insurance plan. Kennedy secretly sent his top aides to meet with Altman in a church basement near the Capitol. At that point, Kennedy was pushing for a fully government-run plan, while Nixon wanted to require employers to provide private coverage. But Altman says Kennedy was willing to try to find common ground. The problem, of course, is that uh, Kennedy was way out in front of his more liberal uh, compatriots, and we were way out in front of the more conservative, and ultimately the whole thing blew apart. But it impressed on me that at the end of the day, Senator Kennedy wanted to make changes that help people, and if it meant moving away from his preferred position to a compromise, he was willing to do it. In 1980, Kennedy lost what would be his last chance to become president after he failed to defeat President Jimmy Carter in the primaries. That fall, he also lost his legislative power when the Republicans took over the Senate. But he managed to adapt once again. This time, he forged a most unlikely alliance with conservative Utah Republican Orrin Hatch. Together in the 1980s and 1990s, the two teamed up to pass landmark legislation, including the Ryan White AIDS Law, Children's Health Insurance Program, and bills to streamline drug approvals at the Food and Drug Administration, among others. We've been a very active and successful team where we've covered the universe from the left to the right. Kennedy, however, wasn't willing to compromise away his fundamental beliefs. In 2003, he voted for the initial version of a Medicare prescription drug bill in order to advance a cause he'd been pursuing for years. But he was furious that the final version was too favorable to the drug and insurance companies. Here's how he put it at a rally for senior citizens on Capitol Hill the same day President Bush signed the bill. Who do you trust to fix the Medicare program? The HMO coddling, the drug company loving, the Medicare destroying, the Social Security hating Bush administration, or do you trust Democrats who created Medicare and will fight to defend it every day, every week, every month, and every year? Kennedy didn't always win. He spent nearly a decade trying in vain to pass a so-called patient's bill of rights, but usually his persistence paid off. When Democrats took the Senate back in 2007, Kennedy made up for lost time. He steered through two bills that each languished for more than a decade. One banned insurance discrimination based on a person's genetic makeup. The other required insurers to provide the same coverage for mental as for physical ailments. And he began the painstaking task of laying the groundwork for yet another push for universal health insurance coverage. He renewed that call in his surprise appearance at the Democratic National Convention in 2008, even in the midst of his cancer treatment. And this is the cause of my life, new hope, that we will break the old gridlock and guarantee that every American, north, south, east, west, young, old, will have decent quality health care as a fundamental right and not a privilege. 
Kennedy returned to Washington on and off in the early part of the Obama administration. He was an early and strong supporter of the new president, but he did not live long enough to see that final dream realized. That's NPR's Julie Robner. And, uh, Julie, we know that as recently as last month, Senator Kennedy was actively involved, by telephone at least, in steering a health care bill through his Senate committee. Without him, what happens now? Well, he does represent the loss of that critical 60th vote in the Senate, uh, and the governor cannot appoint someone to take his place. There'll have to be a special election. That won't happen for a few months. On the other hand, it's not at all clear that the Democrats ever really had 60 votes for health care overhaul. There were several moderate Democrats who have been wavering quite a bit. So that that's not really going to be such an issue. Given Senator Kennedy's uh, record for, for uh, reaching across the aisle, for developing compromises in the Senate, do you think that uh, if he had been well this past year and if he had been more active uh, uh, in the health care debate, that perhaps things wouldn't be quite so partisan as they are now. Well, that's one that you really have to wonder about. I've seen a number of Republicans over the past couple of weeks ask that same question, and they've all said, you know, that really might be. The, the, Senator Kennedy really had an amazing ability for all his liberal leanings to reach across the aisle, to work with Republicans, to find ways to find a middle ground. Now, it may be that this was just destined to become partisan because the Republicans want so badly to give President Obama Obama a big loss, but it may also just be that, that Senator Kennedy might have been able to find some of those middle ground places in this debate. health insurance companies in the country says it is extremely neutral in the current debate over reform. But last week it provided Politico.com with the talking points it gives its own employees for attending protests and town halls. Included therein, quote, a government-run health plan would be a roadblock to meaningful health care reform. A United Health Group customer told Talking Points Memo and repeated to Countdown that the insurer directed him to right-wing sites and events. United Health Group denies this. But in our third story tonight, what kind of company thinks opposing the president's health care plan is extremely neutral? According to OpenSecrets.org, President and CEO Stephen Hemsley has personally given $15,000 to Democrats, $41,000 to Republicans, and $36,000 more to United's Political Action Committee, a committee which has given hundreds of thousands to Republicans, but as of the 2008 election cycle, had given 61% to Democrats, who now, of course, control the health care debate. All of that, of course, is legal. However, after fighting lawsuits filed by New York Attorney General Andrew Cuomo and the American Medical Association, lawsuits which accused United Health Group of a scheme to defraud patients, which United Health Group denied, United Health Group decided to settle those suits one week before President Obama took office. Here's how the scheme worked. For most Americans, when you go out of network, your insurance pays a preset percentage, not of your actual bill, but of what they think your bill should be, the, quote, usual and customary bill. So if your insurance company covered 80% of out-of-network costs and the usual and customary rate estimate for a chest x-ray was 100 bucks. your insurance company paid you 80 bucks, even if your actual x-ray cost 150 Why? Physician reimbursement based on nothing but the doctor's bill is simply not economically tenable for consumers, nor sustainable for our health care system. So what would be economically tenable? For decades, insurance companies bought their estimates of usual and customary from two competing databases. Seven months after Mr. Hemsley joined United Health Group, the company purchased one of those databases. Ten months later, it bought the other one. Just a year and a half later, the AMA sued, claiming United Health Group was now lowballing the usual and customary rates used by the insurance industry. So insurance companies, including United Health Group, could cheat patients and providers on their reimbursements, telling patients the company providing their 
rate estimates was, quote, independent, while United Health Group was telling other insurance companies they would get a 16 to 1 return on investment if they bought those rate estimates from United Health Group. Cuomo said United Health Group lowballed consumers by as much as 30 percent. United Health Group's own general counsel said conflicts of interest were inherent. Mr. Hemsley did not. We understand that appearance uh, and that uh, appearance of an inherent conflict. United Health Group agreed to pay $50 million to set up a new, actually independent database and to reimburse patients and providers $350 million, although a judge is still deciding whether or not that is enough. A Senate committee concluded that millions of Americans, including more than one million military families, paid billions more for out-of-network health care than they should have. Republicans like to quote the Lewin Group's claim that more than 100 million Americans would ditch employer health plans for a public option. House Whip Eric Cantor, Orrin Hatch of Senate Finance, they have called Lewin nonpartisan. But the Lewin Group, too, is owned by United Health Group, which has given thousands to Hatch and Cantor in just the past two years. Before United Health Group, Hemsley spent 23 years at Arthur Anderson Accounting, serving as chief financial officer from fall of 1995 until he left in 97. For services overlapping that period, Arthur Anderson Accounting became embroiled in several scandals, sued for fraud over its accounting for Waste Management Incorporated, denied wrongdoing, settled for $95 million, sued over Sunbeam Accounting, denied wrongdoing, settled for $180 million, fined more than $7 million, sued over the Baptist Foundation of Arizona. These investors, many of whom are elderly, trusted the misleading financial statements audited by Anderson, that from the then Arizona Attorney General Janet Napolitano, denied wrongdoing, settled for $270 million. And Enron, where Arthur Anderson Accounting was both auditor and consultant. By the time both companies came down, Mr. Hemsley was gone. In 1999, Mr. Hemsley negotiated a new deal as United Health Group president. United Health Group's compensation committee gave him stock options, backdated stock options, meaning they were backdated to when the stock was low, so they were worth more, more money the second he got them. This saved him the trouble of having to wait till the stock price actually rose. Two years later, after Hemsley hired the chairman of United Health Group's Compensation Committee as a personal money manager, United Health Group investors were still being told the Compensation Committee was, quote, independent. Both United Health Group's auditor and consultant to the Compensation Committee, Arthur Anderson Accounting. When the Wall Street Journal revealed the backdating, the investors sued. United Health Group got rid of its CEO at the time. It replaced him with the man who received the second most valuable package of backdated options, Hemsley who said he knew nothing about the backdating. Investors sued again, claiming Hemsley had signed off on those options. Why would United Health Group keep Hemsley if that were true? Quote, the impact of the stock was significantly mitigated with the retention of Hemsley. If both had been forced to leave the company, then investors would have looked at it as a wholesale management change. Hemsley denied wrongdoing, but agreed to return some of his options, $190 million worth. According to Business Week, United Health Group has, quote, achieved a secondary aim of constraining the new benefits that will become available to tens of millions of people who are currently uninsured. After Republican Chuck Grassley complained last year, United Health Group stopped marketing a plan to seniors that left them thinking they were fully covered when they only had supplemental coverage. Last year, hospital executives rated big insurance companies in a national survey. Aetna was best, WellPoint second worst, United Health Group was worst. Favorable, 8%. Unfavorable, 91%. United Health Group has reportedly hit small businesses and consumers with regular double-digit rate hikes recently, far outstripping inflation. In 2007, United Health Group denied but agreed to settle claims of handling patient claims improperly in at least 37 states. I tried to explain to them that if I do not have this, I will die. And the only response she gave me was okay. President Obama is now asking United Health Group for advice on how to reform health care. He met with Hemsley twice this May. On June 1st, lead senators on health care asked Senator Ken Conrad to come up with an alternative to the public option. Three days later, Senator Conrad met with Hemsley and top United Health Group lobbyist Simon Stevens. Conrad has since that meeting led an effort to create nonprofit medical cooperatives, Business Week reported. With less heft than a proposed national plan, the state medical cooperatives would pose a far weaker competitive threat to private insurers. Conrad said the idea of co-ops came out of conversations in my office. Senator Conrad's office told Countdown, quote, you're barking up the wrong tree. Co-ops were not discussed. The senator met with them for 15 minutes to discuss care coordination and how that could lead to both cost savings and better health care outcomes. Investment News reports a public option would benefit insurers who can handle the, core, uh, the cost of care coordination. Only the largest insurers, such as Aetna, WellPoint, and United Health Group could do that. 
late this spring on the Finance Committee, which Conrad sits, it was reportedly planning to have you pick up 24% of your medical bills on top of your premiums. But then, quote, Stevens and his United Healthcare colleagues urged a more industry-friendly ratio. The Finance Committee decided that now you will pay 35% of your medical bills on top of your premiums. Last year, United Health Group made a profit of $5 billion. Thus, in a dozen years in United Health Group's employ, Mr. Hensley's total compensation has been valued at three quarters of a billion dollars so far. Thanks for listening, everybody. Now, is it just me or are you guys sick to death of this healthcare debate? I mean, first of all, yes, I'd love to see some strong legislation passed, but there are a couple of things. First, we started this whole debate already conceding that we weren't going to get really good, really strong legislation. We conceded that point from the very beginning. And now, as was predicted before the August recess, the longer it stretches out, the more likely it is for the bill to be weaker and weaker or possibly die. I mean, it's just... And then besides the fact, just the debate is taking so long. I'm just sick to death of it and can't wait for it to be over. Um, maybe you feel the same way. So now, anyways, that, that's just me complaining. But now i got to do that thing where I remind all the listeners, uh, new and old, not, uh, not young and old, you know, old-time listeners, brand-new listeners... You just got to be reminded every once in a while of the rules of the game here. Now, as you undoubtedly learned years ago, you don't really get anything for free. So I know this, this show is seems good, it seems like it's free, but it's really not. It really comes with a gigantic uh, burden of guilt. We're all familiar with this. We're all, you know, practically all of us uh, listening and involved are of, you know, liberal, progressive mindset. And so we're all very familiar with liberal guilt. In this case, though, it's really easy to get rid of. The guilt you should be feeling is that you have been listening to this show for free and not giving anything back in return. But it's really easy to give back and uh, relieve yourself of that guilt. So what some people do, you know, you can uh, donate a couple of bucks or more than a couple of bucks, become a member. Uh, sign up to do a recurring donation as little as $5 a month um, or $55 a year. I just put a new button up there. If you want to make it a yearly membership, you could get a $5 discount. Who's going to argue with that? But the other way that I have been neglecting to, uh, to talk about as much is telling five friends. This is super easy and totally free, but it helps the show. And frankly, like if you listen to the show then you know if you tell your friends, they're going to appreciate that they heard about it because then they get to listen too and they're going to love it. So take a few minutes, uh, write an email, send it to five friends, and here's a new idea we've been playing with. Track down a group of people, like-minded people. They get together, do liberal things. Uh, you know, your local Democratic club, your local Green Party club, your local uh, get-together-and-talk-about-politics-over-breakfast club your local drinking liberally club, your, you know, whatever, any group like that, write them a note, say, hey, you know, you don't know me, but we're on the same page politically, and I just wanted to tell you about this show, and you should tell all of your members about it. Because, man, five minutes to write that email, and you're going to be reaching 25 people instead of one or five. So to make it even easier, there's a sample email that a listener wrote, um, they sent it to me to say, like, hey, this is what I wrote, and I've posted it up on the website. So if you go and you check out bestoftheleft.com, right under the Spread the Word tab at the top, there is linked up there a sample email. You can copy and paste if you like, change it as much as you want to make it your own. You know how it goes. Now I just have to thank a couple of members who did sign up to send in recurring donations to help support the show. Meredith F. joined up on July 16th, and Steve S. joined up July 21st. Thanks so much to both of you. Of course, all the members get uh, not only the satisfaction of knowing they're helping to support the show and really just making my dream come true of being able to do this podcast as, as part-time work, 
but they also get access to the best of left raw feed where they get all the clips that will be used in the show as well as some that end up not making the final cut into the show and the clips come in their original video format when available now that's a pretty good deal if you ask me so anyways that's it for today uh thanks just for sticking around to the end to hear me talk about this stuff uh stay connected with the show on twitter facebook by signing up for our email news alerts support the show by leaving reviews in itunes voting at podcast alley speaking of which uh we're not doing so well at podcast alley we need a little bit more support there i'm not sure exactly what the problem is but let's get that in gear and by filling out the listener survey on the website you can listen to the show on your smartphone without having to sync with your computer by visiting stitcher.com visit the show notes on the blog you'll find all the links to the sources and the music using the show you click through by the music right from the website or brand new feature the music links are actually embedded directly into the show itself if you're listening to the show in itunes as the song comes up a link to the song pops up in the bottom left hand corner you go right to itunes buy it right there and a few cents of that transaction helps support the show what could be better so coming to you from inside the beltway and border yet outside the conventional wisdom of washington dc my name is jay and this has been the best of left podcast delivered to you every wednesday and every weekend thanks to the members from bestoftheleft.com Oh, oh, oh.